Oh my goodness, what a brilliant, energetic, charismatic woman Trini Woodall is. And I know you're going to love this conversation. I grew up watching her on TV. I have now loved watching her on Instagram Live. So I knew this was going to be a fantastic interview, but nothing quite prepared me for this vulnerable side of Trini. I so respect this woman who is doing it all again and she just brings such wisdom to her new entrepreneurial journey. All I can say is get those notepads ready because this is a podcast that is about hard work, guts and complete determination. It's a goodie. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. It's such a pleasure, Trini, to welcome you today, a household name in the UK, the founder of the brilliant Trini London, the queen of style and the master of evolution. I'm going to talk to you about this, but welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. So happy to be on the podcast, Holly. Thank you very much. I'm just even hearing your voice, Trini. I get to speak to you today. This is amazing. So when I was researching you for this podcast, I really felt that your golden thread is this incredible ability that you have to whatever life throws at you, uh, you've been able to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and do it all of again. And this resilience that you have speaks volumes about your character. Is tenacity a trait you recognise in yourself? And is it something that you think women in business need if they are to succeed? Yes, I want to understand first the difference in my mind between perseverance and tenacity. What do you think? Well, I think perseverance is you get up, you dust yourself down and you persevere. Mm -hmm. Tenacity has a certain cleverness about it. So you could persevere in a boxing fight, but tenacity is in the boardroom. I don't know. I I might be totally wrong because I get ideas for words from an era in my life and it might be a totally incorrect interpretation of what that word is and I keep it for 20 years. So I'm not sure. So I don't know how to answer your question, but I'm going to try and answer it. Well, I have these things called hollyisms. So I'm not even going to go broadcast those. I mean, it's just a whole uh, cupboard that I keep shut. But what do you think? I think you're right in saying that. So do you think it's perseverance then? I think it's a mixture of the two, because I think that sometimes, literally, you want to have duvet therapy and you think, you know, once more onto the breach, dear friends, and you think, can I? Do I have it in me? Do I have the strength to do it? And there's been times in my life where I really thought I'd rather go back and have duvet therapy. Then when I use my physical body to get that momentum in, 
it wakens up my tenacity. Mm. That's how I'd put it. And then I will become tenacious because I've got the physical energy to then be tenacious to go for it. Mm. That's how I'd use the two words together. Different points maybe for different times in your life. Because I'm wondering if that is a characteristic you've had since childhood. Because I read you grew up in London, the youngest of six children. Your father was a banker and your parents travelled a lot, which meant that you attended a boarding school from a very young age and that you've said you felt that you were quite a solitary child. I think I felt it quite profoundly and I felt it because I'm the youngest of six kids, two marriages, but my brother and sister from the very earliest memories I have, which are only about five years old, weren't at home and they were at school. And I went to a boarding school at six and a half that my sister was at, but I didn't see her much. I don't have memories of seeing her much because it was a criminally cruel school and they separated out siblings. There was nothing about sibling to kind of tuck you in at night. She tried to run away from the school three times and they wouldn't tell me where she was. And they sort of found her down the road and they put her in the sand for a week. So it was really just evil. Evil is a word I'd attach to Buckswood Grange School, if anyone ever went there. Closed down, turned into an old people's home and should have been bulldozed, frankly, as far as I consider. So it made me feel, Holly, I felt lonely from about six and a half through to about 14. Mm -hmm. And when we use the word lonely, it's about... I found it difficult to make friends and I always felt either I was eggshelling around to be the friend somebody wanted me to be or I just did extreme things to make people think I was funny, but maybe they weren't. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of stuff. I remember a few memories like that and I remember being quite scared of some people at school. You know, I was the kind of person that somebody maybe picked on when I finally left the school, I went to a school in Germany for a year because my parents had moved there and it was an international school. And I remember this girl had that necklace that when you turned it, it said, I love you. It was like, you know, it looked like Braille, mm -hmm. but you twisted it. And she was showing it off at school. She was the only one with one. And I turned it and I broke it. And she was in this very cool gang. And she said, you've got to pay me back for that necklace. And I was mortified and I felt I couldn't tell my parents and, you know, she made out it was very expensive. So I was just weighed down for weeks about having to try and work out how I paid her back. And in the end, I took small change off my dad's dresser because I didn't have money mm -hmm. and I didn't really have pocket money. And so I did this. And it, the guilt I had over doing this, but the fear of telling my parents being even greater made me do it. Then one day... My dad came and said, what are you doing? And I said, and I sort of burst into tears and I said, you know, whatever. And she, she wants 100 Deutschmarks, which was a huge amount of money then because of the pound Deutschmark ratio. And he said, what, what is going on, Trini? You know, what was this thing you broke? It wasn't gold. And I said, no. And he said, she's, you know, so then it all became an issue and stuff. But it made me, I was just fearful. I'm so unfearful now. And... Mm. A lot of my journey has been how to be fearless, you know, and because going from fearful of that time when you're eggshelling or you're concerned or you just do things because you're scared of something is such a horrible place to live in. Mm. I look back and I'm so relieved I don't live in that fear-based life anymore. Thank you for telling me that. And it's a funny thing, isn't it, when we look back at our childhood and we have this obsession with youth and we're going to talk about all of these sorts of things. But 
I would you couldn't pay me any money to go back to childhood in a way. Mm. You know, the insecurities, the self-doubt, everything. Yeah. It was overwhelming. Mm. Uh, let alone teenage. Yeah. I was you going know, to say let alone early twenties as well. Actually, oh my god. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'd say even late twenties. Anyway, yeah. but you know, I would not do it again. Mm-hmm. Um tell me, it changed though for you, didn't it? And I read that whilst your parents were living abroad. You started, and you said that, you know, up to you were 14, that you started to find your niche, Mm -hmm. that you started to pick clothes for friends Mm -hmm. in Europe. Mm. Benetton. I mean, I loved Benetton. Oh, Um, Benetton was so Remember the days, you know, those ad campaigns, the best things. And I remember when I speak to other founders, this little, I call them diamonds, you know, your diamonds started to flicker, Mm -hmm. you know, at this age of 14, 15. Mm. Do you think now you look back, that was the start of you finding what made you happy? That, I mean, that's the best phrasing of it, because I hadn't really felt happy. And this gay, I found out what gave me Mm self-worth. And that's actually probably, I would say, looking back, They're very closely connected because if you get self-worth from something, you feel happier. But it definitely was what gave me value. And that was what it started with. So I did it and I did feel happy, but it gave me value to other people. And I've maybe felt valueless to other people. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I had a value. They would say, what do you think, Trini? And I felt so excited that somebody valued my opinion. Um, And when you're the youngest child, you kind of are going, hi, I'm, hi. Hi, you know, and jumping up and down like a jack in a box, try and get your opinion her. And so uh, that did make me feel that. And I would, you know, be staying in school at the weekends. A lot of people went home. And so there was this little group of us and we would just share what we had. And I would love putting people makeup on. And then I got really bad spots at school. So I was always looking for the cures and looking them up and making potions in my bathroom for curing my spots, including the toothpaste hack with something else very weird. So, yes, it was that was that beginning. Very nice. They were diamonds. They were, in fact, uncut diamonds. They were little. Yes. I don't know what they were then. Very small. Hadn't been nurtured yet. No. And then you left school, you know, after school at 18. You've said that you didn't have any particular career aspirations. You fell into secretarial work and you threw your real energy into your social life. And there was this perception that you were leading a very glamorous life. But you've also described this period of your life where you were riddled with self-doubt, what we now call probably, you know, this word imposter syndrome. Mm. We didn't have a word for it back then. Tell me about this period of your life. I'd say it's called living on quicksand. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. Because I left school and I did have... I had this vision that I should be in finance because my dad was. I had no path to get there because I'd left school and didn't go to university. I'd wanted to want to go to American school and financially it wasn't possible. So at 18, I started working and I'd had a Saturday job cutting meat at a delicatessen when I was doing my A-level. So, you know, I was kind of... And that didn't grab you? Not quite, no. And also if I cut the meat too thick, they docked my £28 a day to about 16. So it was really just not a good money earner either. (laughs) Um, Partridges and Sloan Street used to be then very, you know, high-end clientele, very badly paid uh, staff. And I then thought, all right, well, I'll go and work in finance. And I started working as a a secretary. And I I remember I could hardly type. And then I just slightly did these different jobs and I fell into things. And I did PR for the Barclay Hotel in London because I was sort of quite social as well. And when the kind of commodities trading house wasn't working, then I went into doing PR for the Barclay. and And I got this job because I sat next to the general manager of the Barclay 
called Stefano Sebastiani. I remember his name now. I haven't said his name for about 30 years. This Italian. And he was quite, and I had lots of Italian friends. I had tons of European friends in London. And so I was sort of, you know, parting away, trying to have a career, but also lots of people felt I had lots of friends. I didn't feel that comfortable in myself though. And I sat next to this guy and and he sort of, you know, at this dinner, lots of people coming up and saying hello to me. And he said, you know so many people in London, Trini. I want you to help me reinvigorate the, the Perroquet Club, which is this <laughs> restaurant then. It was called the Barclay Buttery. All right, what a name. What a name? Was. The Barclay Buttery then turned into the Perroquet Club, which turned into something else. It's now some very smart chef. So I said, I don't know what I could do. And, and that, no, then he said to me, "Why?" this is such an old-fashioned influencer beginning. So he said, come in and if you bring in a group of friends, I'll pay you to bring in some cool people. So I went away and I said to my dad, he's asked you to do this. And he said, turn it into a job. Mm. Think about how you can turn it into a job. Go back and give him a reason to hire you. You're one of the original influencers. I said, yes, sir. I mean, hello. I know, this is like 1985, all right. So then I went back to him and I said, look, I can give you my address book, but I don't want to do that. So why don't you give me a job and I'll just try and get interesting people to come to this restaurant. Mm -hmm. He said, all right, I'll give you six months. And if you can increase the covers by from 30 people to 60, great. So I said, fine. So then, actually, I remember, I haven't told this story for so long, but it was quite funny. So I'm going to tell you. So then I had all these girlfriends and I said to him, I'm going to get you the best mailing list. So I had a friend of mine who worked supplying the caviar and the salmon to Annabelle's nightclub. (laughs) And I said to him, and he really wanted to supply caviar and salmon to the Barclay Hotel and the Savoy Group. And I had made really good friends with the guy who was the procurer of the group for all every, food and everything. And he just would just always come down to my office and would chat kind of thing. So I said to him, OK, um, will you please let this man supply salmon and caviar to the Savoy Group? Because he's great and he supplies Annabelle's and everyone. And in return, this guy said, I'll get you the Annabelle's mailing list. So I said, deal. Okay, so then... For some um, fish. Yeah, for some fish. I mean, God. (laughs) So then um, we supplied it, whatever, and then got the list. And then I got, I said to Stephanie, and and this is a time when typewriting skills came out. And I said, look, I need eight girls that we've got to hire for two weeks. And they, because we've got to write these cards... Um, and, and put the name of the person and invite them to this club we're going to set up and they have a membership number. And it was all done manually. There wasn't, you know, there was literally the <laughs> IBM round bally thing that clapped very heavily. So he said, OK. So in the end, I had a suite and I had eight girls from Queensgate School and they all typed up and we typed up 10,000 cards and or, no, 6,000 cards and and wrote this letter and we invited them and we said, dear Lord and Lady Earl Encounters, whatever, do come to the Barclay and for twelve ninety nine you can have a three-course meal. Now, everyone loves a bargain, especially an entitled person sitting in the countryside on a pile of <laughs> bricks they can't keep up, all right? So then suddenly, you know, over like, then we sent them all out and it was like holding my breath moment, you know, and everyone in the hotel thought, you know, all these classic hotel train people were saying to Stefano, why have you hired this cretinous girl who has all these little entitled schoolgirls in a suite typing out this stuff? So I was like the joke of the Barclay Hotel. But like, you know, when you're waiting, you're waiting to be valued. So after 10 days, because post took a long time then, after 10 days, suddenly, ring, 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 ring. Can I book a table? Can I book a table? Fully booked, fully booked. So over the period of a month, we had wait lists. We were fully booked. And 
I got grudgingly the respect. And I remember going to the morning meeting in his office, you know, with all the heads of the banqueting head and Brian Goodbury, who ran the black book at the concierge desk and all this kind of, I mean, there's such, it's like when they talk about that below the stairs of the ships, they should do it in, in they've done it in hotels, haven't they? They did a clarity. Anyway, whatever happened, it worked. It worked. And so I, I got my reputation there and carried on. But I, di- I was also going mad partying. I'd arrive late. I would go into my little office, lock the door and go sleep on the floor for two hours. All right. So there was <laughs> there was yin and yang in this job. There certainly was. And you did this for what? A, 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 year? a year. Every job was about a, 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 year. a year, maybe 15 months. And then I was on to the next. On to the next. And yeah. what, what in the end changed this period of time for you? Was there a particular trigger? Went to rehab. That could do it. Yeah. yeah, I think I just like had enough yeah. and needed to take time out. And um, so I went to rehab and then I, after rehab, went to live in a halfway house in Western Supermare for nine months, which was really fun. I worked in an old people's home and a plant nursery from January to March. This was really cold. And the old people's home was lovely. And I lived on £12 a week in a halfway house for nine months. So that was really... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that got that got you to another space in your life. And mm-hmm. what were you thinking at that point in time when you were in that halfway house? How how did you think about the next era of your life? I thought I never want to go back to how I felt in my life. And I'm very nervous about what's ahead. So what it did teach me was to live in the moment. First mm. time probably I had. So I kind of had to live in the moment because the moment was the only thing I recognised and understood. And I knew I didn't want to go back to London straight away because I thought I might just, you know, go mad again. And I didn't know what was ahead or what I wanted to do because it was when you go to take a year out, take time off, go to rehab, you sort of, if you do any work on yourself, you peel back these layers of an onion and you're left with a really raw, squidgy onion, Mm -hmm. which you then have to slowly build up again. And what you're building up then is the ability to live a life on bricks and not on quicksand. Because the imposter syndrome will ease. Gosh, that was so eloquent. I mean, what a what a what an experience, actually. You know, and and, and not that we would wish to go through that experience, but I think many people find themselves in their lives where they've never peeled back an onion, mm. and they travel through and making different decisions, and they maybe should. During this period of time, though, you continued meeting people and sharing your wardrobe with friends. And you met Susanna Constantine at the dinner party. You had this mutual interest in fashion. You teamed up and you began writing a fashion column for The Telegraph called Ready to Wear. And a rather iconic duo was born. Mm -hmm. You later became co-founders of readytoshop.com. And it was this online fashion advice business that was basically incredibly ahead of its time and potentially why it didn't work. Because tell me, were you able to maintain that belief in yourself and what you were doing or did the self-doubt start creeping up again? So this is a big moment meeting your 20-year co-founder, but you launched a business that then didn't work. And I, mm. I, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? It is difficult because... I had the idea for the business. And there's very interesting things because I pulled apart recently that whole period of my life. And this is like 1989. Sorry, 1999. Let me just jump forward 10 years. 1999. So we had done um, the Telegraph column. We hadn't done TV yet. And we had, you know, had people who sort of knew a little bit about us. So I had a weekend where I was doing this kind of 
fast. I think I was, I went through some faddish thing. I don't know why I did this. I'd never done one. I've done one twice in my life. But anyway, I did one at the stage. When I was doing this, drinking this horrible liquid for a weekend, I had this idea and I had just thought this online world, which was really new then, and there was no e-commerce online, apart from very high-end transactional things, was incredible because a newspaper can only be one country, but I can give information to people and that any time of day in any country, they can access it. And that was mesmerizing to me. Yeah. And that's the thing that drew me into what was the embryonic life of online. So I wrote down this one pager and then I said, Susanna, I think we should do this business and I want to have this destination and we'll take everything we know and we'll put it there and we'll have a, a fashion channel, a food channel, a makeup channel, a skincare channel, everything channel. And we're going to provide tons of information and somehow we'll make money from it. Don't know how yet. So we went to see a woman at Cable and Wireless because I'd got a CD-ROM, a CD tape of the Horse Whisperer and Cable and Wireless sponsored it. And I thought there must be something to do with the, the <laughs> internet. So I went to see Jill Street. If you're still alive, Jill, you made the worst deal for yourself and Cable and Wireless, the best deal for Susanna and I at the time. And I went in and with Susanna and I, she sort of, I pitched the idea and she said, how much money do you think you need? And I just said half a million pounds to just begin to look at the idea. And Susanna, I remember, kicked me under the table. And I was like, more front than Brighton Beach. So the woman then said, well, let me think about it. And we left. And I had no idea, but I really had belief in this idea, but I had no idea if she was going to grab it. And then a week later, she sends me, I think she sends me a letter I, or maybe email by this stage, that long ago. It's, she sends me an email, of course she does. And she said, I think you got the amount wrong, but we will give you £675,000, however she going with that amount of money. And um, I said, great, what do you need in return for it? She said, well, look, this will give you the, the money to begin to build out what you want to do. And if you do e-com on the site, use Cable & Wireless and have our logo on the homepage and the other pages. Okay, so I was like, uh, yep. <laughs> That's a pretty good deal for a logo. Really good deal. So then I went off and I hired a few people. Susanna was in the process of having a second baby. And this is a stage of my life where I had no empathy for anyone who was a mother mm -hmm. at all. All right, because we were on different planets at this stage. I was obsessed, sort of 16, 18 hours a day obsessed. Susanna was interested, having children, mm -hmm. being involved, but being really healthy work-life balance, which I had no clue about. And so I then got my brother involved, who became CFO. I hired in a few people and we went to raise money. So we raised seven and a half million pounds in three and a half, four weeks. Wow. Because the internet was so, people were, you know, just starting VC funds. They were desperate to throw money at stuff. And they saw women, online destination, don't know what it is. Those girls would be nice column, two million readers, let's do it. So we did it, hired people. I hired in way too uh, qualified people, because at the time mm -hmm. I thought, I don't know about coding. So I hired in a team of 12 people who did Perl coding. It's hard coding. It means that you can't change anything when you've written it. It's like a nightmare, but we did that. Then we had a woman who was at Barclays Bank to be CEO. Oh my gosh. I was founder and chairman and she was from banking and knew how to run a business when you had 20,000 people in it and you were like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, worst <laughs> I know person. the one. <laughs> Lovely woman, not right to hire. Um, my brother was CFO and he was great. Um, then Everyone was on a different channel. We had about 50 people in the business. Grew quickly, released an office, all excitable, took 
4,000 pieces of clothing from the high street, photographed every single one because I wanted you to go online. And it was really out of time. You'd go online. It's so ahead of the time. You'd choose your body shape. You could move it, make give yourself bigger boobs, smaller hips, bigger hips, longer legs, shorter legs. You say, that's me and I want a red dress in a size 14 and I don't want to pay more than 100 quid. Wow. And then it would show you four. Wow. And then, of course, you go back to high street and buy it. And how are we going to make money? Mm. Then I thought of a way that we would make money. And we would take all the data from women and we'd ask them a lot about skincare and makeup. And from that, we'd be able to supply information on women like Procter & Gamble and things to those kind of companies where they're not doing a competition to get information. So it's very objective data. Yes. So it was the beginning of that idea of how can you value a company on the data? And so in the end, we had 20,000 women who signed up giving 239 bits of data on themselves. So we had a huge amount of data, but the past conversion was going to be long. After 18 months, it was a dot-com, mm-hmm. just about 2003 or 2002 and we couldn't raise more money and I had to close the company. And Susanna was off having a baby and I had to close the company. And that was the hardest thing. That whole intense 18 months, it taught me for when I'm looking at Trinity London, hire, yeah, don't hire senior people straight away. It taught me really look after your cash and protect it um, and just think about every decision and know what you know. Because we know more than we think we know and we need to understand exactly. what we don't know and understand the difference between the two. Oh, it's such what a story and it's also such a great example of what can happen. You know, you hire in those who you think will know far better, the silver bullets, all these sorts of things, and you forget that actually you dreamt it up. You knew everything that needed to be known about that business. But at that yeah. point in time, I don't think, you know, uh, anyway, failure, all these sorts of things, the way the world has moved on, how entrepreneurs speak even today and the lessons that you've learned, obviously you're taking through. But I think when we talk to small businesses, majority of whom are listening to this podcast, there is this idea that hiring the C-suite, you know, the person who mm-hmm. has worked in a bank, God, what are they going to know? As you said, they need 20,000 people to even be able to start to do anything that you do in a single day. Mm. You know, it's remarkable. Mm. Tell me, was it like grief when you lost that business? It was so profound. You know, I think people listening will have gone through this. And I think you've had experience of just, you know, starting new things and letting go of old ones. But I found it very, I, I felt at the time, I remember thinking, Everyone's put so much into this. I want to make sure they get a good redundancy. And I was really good about making sure everyone had ha- had a three-month redundancy, which meant that we came out with no money in the business. But I felt all the money that had been invested went to pay off a team who'd worked hard. So I did that. And Susanna was having a baby. There was that element of thinking, I'm on my own here a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, but I also appreciated that Susanna was having a baby. And I went off for a month and I went to... America. And then I spent about a week doing this inner path workshop at a place called Cottonwood. It was run by this amazing woman called Raquel Lerner, who's one of the best therapists I've ever met. She does a lot of sort of inner, your inner child work and all this kind of stuff, which I sometimes cringe at, but I kind of get to. But I went on these walks with all the cacti in the desert. And I just got to a stage where I felt whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Instead of regret and rue. And I think at that point, Holly, I thought, well, there's another stage in my life which which made me even more profoundly think I'm not going to live in the past. Mm. That was that first time me thinking I will never live in the past. I have lived in the present and the future. Um, because it's 
too painful to look at the past sometimes. And you want to let go of what's happened and you want to start fresh. But I came back with that real open mind instead of when I'd left, which was my life is over. Even though my life wasn't over, I felt my life was mm. over because I'd put so much into this and everything I lived and breathed. Exactly. And we can, and that's, you know, one of the things that can happen and does happen. I don't know what you feel. And we're going to talk about Trini London soon, but, you know, uh, certainly myself and Holly and Co, not in the high street. It's my identity. You know, the, these things were born out of me. And, you know, as we are parents, we understand it's very similar to having a child. Let's go to the next part, which is, of course, you did pick yourself up again. You did dust yourself off again. And it led to you being signed by BBC Two. And that was the start of what not to wear era. Mm. Everyone is screaming right now, even though you can't hear it, because this is a big era for so many women, because it was the first time you had two really straight talking women giving fashion advice in a way that had never been done before. What was that period of your time like? So Susanna now was in your life and you were mm -hmm. together. You'd had these two huge episodes already. So mm -hmm. you were coming in with some war scars, which mm -hmm. is quite good, mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. um, you launched this TV career. What happened? Because it, it was a phenomenal success. I think it's interesting because when you're in the middle of something, it, it seems to take much longer to evolve than from the outside when people mm -hmm. look and just see that moment somebody is successful and thinks maybe they didn't exist beforehand. So when I look from the inside out, I look at the fact we did seven years on the TV column. We did this internet business, you know, then we did the BBC. We did the first series on BBC Two. You know, I didn't know how many was a good number of, of viewing figures. So, you know, after the first show, it was like we had a million and a half people watching and then suddenly two were watching and then three were watching. The BBC said, you know, this is really good. And I was like, what's good? Because I didn't know mm -hmm. what was good yeah. in TV. It wasn't land, your world. You know? uh, it wasn't my world at all. And so there was that kind of this is different. And I enjoyed making it too. It was very formulaic and, you know, how the show, I learned quite quickly that how Susanna and I never wanted to do auto cue or anything. Mm -hmm. So it was the first time in that genre that there wasn't that kind of fed your lines. You, you had your yeah. opening line, they fed you just for timing, but then it was our sort of chat. And the very first few shows, it was a bit more formulaic. And Suzanne and I said, look, this is not us. This is not us as our best. We have to lose these scripts. And so we did. And that made it more organic. Yep. And we found our sides because, you know, in physicality, Susanna is hourglass. I'm angular. She's warm and fuzzy. Give me a hug. And I'm let me tell you properly what I think and more analytical. So they really built on those yes. uh, when they did the edit. So it, we were even more an extreme of two women than we probably were naturally. And I always thought Susanna was much funnier than me. And all these things that only when I started working my, on my own again and Susanna started working on own again, did we realize we had both that yin and yang. But it had been so divided between us that I became far more just one side of my personality. Yes. And so did Susanna. So that was interesting. When I look back, I can see that now. But it did, you know, we'd done a book before uh, What Not to Wear and it sold 13,000 copies. And then our agent said, look, why don't you do another book? And we were like, oh, what do we do? And we just thought, oh, it's the A to Z. It's like, you know, dressing for big boobs and flat boobs, dressing for big hips and, you know, like yeah. big and small. I don't want to use that word, but, you know, curvy or non-curvy or short legs, long legs. And so we did this and we, I remember did the book quite quickly and we just were like, we sort of banged it up because we knew it so well. We'd written about it so long. Yes. And then when the book sold and we were doing series two and the book was selling, 
And I remember my book agent calling me up and said, we sold 47,000 copies this week. And I was like, is that good? Is that good? (laughs) And they went, yes, that's good. Because I didn't know what good meant. And so then I began to get excited, you know, and then we sort of became number one in London, you know, number one bestseller. And then the show got an award. So then there was that moment when Mm -hmm. there was popularity, there was that cultural popularity that we were Marmite, but there was people knew who we were. And that brings lots of other things into it. But I enjoyed it. It was very, it was hard work because when Susanna and I would film for about seven months in the year, we wrote our books for about three or four months in a year. And then we would have a three week holiday in the summer. But otherwise life was beginning to get really full, but we were managing it. We did it for about five years with the BBC and then we, or we did four, four or five years of the BBC and then we moved to ITV because BBC suddenly didn't want us to do Nescafe ads. And that was how we were making a bit of money mm-hmm. because BBC didn't pay brilliantly then, especially women. You know, Nescafe were paying well and our book paid quite well. So I was earning quite good money, but I was spending, Holly, mm. you know, and that's something I, I've had an interesting relationship with money, but I was earning and spending and earning and spending. And I sort of would starve and purge in in spending. You know, I think I can't, you know, that guilt of I can't afford to Mm -hmm. buy anything. I've got to be careful to irrational purchasing, you know, because I had no Mm -hmm. sense of, I've had times in my life where I've had no money to buy anything. And then there is no decision to be made, you know, there's just about survival. Mm -hmm. And then I've had time when I've earned over a million pounds a year. And then it's just I've, I've gone for having a really extravagant lifestyle, but I haven't saved, which has hit me on the nose later. Yes. You know, relationship around money is a, is a very, you have to really grow up into that. I'm so thrilled to be back with another series of my Conversations of Inspiration podcast. And I'm joined by our wonderful partners, Adobe, who are on a mission to help small businesses grow and thrive. From day one of founding Holly & Co, I vowed that I'd only work with brands who I knew we used within my own business, but also shared my belief in the small business community. Since working together, we've used Adobe Express every single day and it truly has empowered all of our team to work more efficiently, easily and creatively. It's packed full of social assets and templates to get you started with designing posters, business cards and your weekly newsletter, for instance. You're also able to upload your brand colours and fonts and it has so many amazing tools that frankly, I thought you needed to be a complete whiz to use, but you don't. Most importantly, it's designed specifically for the many of us that are managing the small business juggle where time is of the essence. But I didn't want you to hear this just from me. So each week, a brilliant small business founder will be joining me to share their own experiences of using Adobe Express and its many tools and templates for their business. I have a feeling that it could help you along your business journey too, but I'll leave that for you to decide. Come to think of it, why don't you go and have a browse of my favourite templates and tools at adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now that's enough from me. Let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It sounds like you're, you know, what you were saying, it's sort of the overnight 10-year success where people, you know, suddenly see on TV the book deal, everything, and it's like, oh, it's just happened for her. And as you're saying, the graft mm. 
personally, the graft, and also within your profession, the graft, to get to that point. When I look at you on Instagram and follow you and watch your IGTVs and all these sorts of things, I feel so connected to you as a woman. And it's a very, very, very unique thing. And certainly at this sort of age as well. Mm -hmm. Was that the start where you found your flock, do you think? You know, when that book went out there, was that the start? Because even though you were the angular, straight talking one, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. you know, there's obviously this soft side of Trini, Mm -hmm. but you were really helping women. You know, it was shivers. It's you were helping. I remember that thing was it the lineup, isn't mm-hmm. it? The lineup. And yeah. You've got to go and put yourself where where you, you felt think you fit. You could be yeah. I still think of that today because mm. I still have my issues with my body, and I say, but if I went into that lineup, where would Trini put me? And just even that now, it's a forty-five-year-old yeah. woman. I still think about that. So, mm. did you find your flock? Did you realise that you were gaining a flock around you? I did. I mean, I think that. What I felt is I was learning so much about women, Mm. you know, because what that show enabled me to have come into my life is women would feel they could come straight up to me in a shop or anywhere and say, like they knew me. So that was the first time women felt they could just talk to me like they knew me and say, hey, Trini, Mm. or they might just say, (laughs) hey, Susanna, because they didn't know which was Trini and which Susanna. It was like Ant and Dec. Um, (laughs) So they'll say, Trisusanna. So Trini, like that, yeah, yeah, I'm Trini and Susanna. Yeah. Um, and they'd say, look, shall I, you know, I'll be in a changing room at Chop Shop. Shall I buy this dress? And I'll just look like a doctor, scan. I'll go, no, not good for that. Or yeah, great on you. Or you should do it, take the risk. And I loved that. I mm. loved going back to that thing at six and a half, Holly, mm. of being needed. Yeah. You know, it's a very fulfilling thing to just be needed or somebody wants your opinion. Mm. I, I kind of, you know, I grew my self-worth on people valuing my opinion. And I also, one thing you have to learn to do in TV when you do a show like this, and the more we fine-tune the show, and then, you know, we we did the show, we moved to ITV, we did two series on that and became very emotional, that show, and it wasn't as critically successful as our What Not To Wear shows, but I loved it more because we got to know a couple and there were really profound, deep moments and they were couples having a very tough time and you had to very quickly understand the dynamic of that person and the dynamic with somebody else and be able in a period of three days to kind of shift somebody on in their life, which is a huge ask and a big imposition when you don't know them and you have to delicately navigate it. So I picked up a lot of skills then of trying to understand how to read people quickly so that you could develop an interrelationship with them and they can trust you. Mm. And trust is the biggest thing here because Building trust allows people to be more honest about themselves and what their fears are, which allows you to help them more. Mm. And that's, in a way, what Instagram is about today. Mm. It's that I will, you know, I trust you as an audience and I will tell you stuff about me that is intimate or how I feel. And you know that you can trust me that I will try and help you with that and not put you down on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and with Not not To Wear, there was that kind of black and whiteness of the show, but like we never said to women, you look like a piece of shit. We might Mm. say that dress does nothing for you. But we were very careful never ever to put a woman down. And, you know, people look back at the show now and say people could never do a Trini and Susanna show. But if they dissected and look at it, I'm very, very proud that we did a show which did shift some women. So then that finished and that finished because Flavor of the Month 
Mm-hmm. went out and we'd done by this stage five books sold three million books BAFTA award nominated BAFTA whatever and and then other people came Gok Nikki Hamilton Gray all these other people yep. came and so we just had the work dry up in the UK and this was a very difficult time of your life wasn't it because the show ended in 2013 yeah, yeah but the show no because the show ended in the UK in 2007 2008. And then in 2008, or maybe we did something. Yeah, 2008, I think we did a terrible show for ITV called The Great British Body, which we didn't want to do. And they made us do for our contract and I can't bear the show. Um, And we did the show and then that was it, really. It was like the coffin in our grave. I mean, the nail in the coffin. So we had a tiny knicker company called Magic Knicker Company. It was like a precursor to Spanx, actually. And we did it with a Belgian company. And we design these knickers to kind of, you mm-hmm. know, give you different shapes. And um, a Belgium TV company said, will you come make a show? And we were like, oh. And then the, uh, the knicker company said, oh, please do, because it will help our European yeah. audience. We were like, okay, we've got nothing else being offered. Let's make a show in Belgium. So go where, go where you get the work. So we went to Belgium, we made the show, and we did a pilot for it. And it was called the Trinusana Makeover Mission. And unbeknownst to us, they took the show to MIPCOM, which is the TV conference in Cannes, showed it to a few people, Zodiac, which is a distribution company, and about 12 countries said, can you make the show? So our agent called us up saying, they want you to make the show. And I thought they wanted to buy the rights to the show. And they said, no, they want you to come to these countries and make the show. So Sam and I were like, somebody wants to give us a job, let's do it. So for the next three years, we did Israel, Poland, India, Australia, America, Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark. Um, Where else do we go? Weird countries. Anyway, we went to about 10 countries and we made the show. Israel loved making show. And we made the show. We made in some of these countries like three years worth of the show. So then my year suddenly changed. It was very stressful because Susanna and I, I was the main breadwinner in my family. And then I was divorcing my partner. And so I, the only job I knew to do was, was TV. Mm. So I, I kind of had to go where I could earn the money. But it meant that Lila, who was quite little was looked after by Jenny, who is like Lila's grandmother, but was, you know, has been with our family as helping to look after Lila since, since Lila was born. And I would travel. So I'd leave London on a Monday and come back on a Friday for eight months of the year. My goodness. Because it was where I would earn the money. And I was going, you know, I commuted from Israel. I commuted from everywhere. And if I went to um, Australia, I went for a month. My goodness. So it was it was a very, very difficult, very difficult time. And also it's a time when I'm doing photo albums now, Holly, because Lila says to me, will you make, you know, we you stopped making albums in 2010, which I sort of did. And or 2009, I just stopped making albums. I don't know why, but I didn't I didn't have the time. <laughs> so um, okay. I, I was then looking at all these pictures. And what I and what I found quite painful is I was looking at like 2009 and 10 and I see I'm in a trip somewhere and Johnny, my Lila's father, is sending me pictures of Sports Day and sending me pictures of her winning a mm. prize. And I'm seeing, and, it, and I was on holiday doing this album for Lila because she just said, I want to have these pictures. And I just felt very emotional because I realised, I did realise in those years how much I missed. Mm. And it just, with, you know, adding up, the deficit and the plus column, Lila is actually in a great place and we're very, very close. But, and maybe in the grand scheme of things, because she had more time with her father than died, 
Yeah. Maybe there's some reasoning in this. I don't know, but it was just... It's a very... Yeah. You do what you have to do. You do. You and know? you didn't at that time have mm. a choice, you know, as well. Yeah. And I think we look back in hindsight and talk about choice. I mean, you didn't really have a choice, as you said. This was... You were looking at your career for the future. You were the main breadwinner. And this is what you had to do. If you were a man and you had to do that, potentially, you know, and this is the mm. female juggle, isn't it? Mentally and as mothers mm -hmm. and the guilt and everything. That was a difficult time anyway, because generally, because TV had dried up, as you have said, your ex-husband died suddenly and you entered the early menopause. And, you know, I'm so sorry that that all came at once for you. That again must have been and why we started this conversation talking about you dusting yourself off. Here's another episode in your life, right? Mm. That, you know, how this is your third time around navigating something. Mm. What went on there? I'd kind of got to say to I realised I couldn't travel that much, but I hadn't finished the last, I think I'd nearly finished the last series. Um, then my daughter's father died. I had the idea already for Trini London. You know, I'd had the idea for Trini London. I spoke yesterday to my old agent and he reminded me that in 2001, when he became my agent, I had said to him, look at how I do my makeup. I'm going to do this for women one day. It's so weird that in 2001, I told him that and I had no idea. But that idea was in my head a long time. You know, this idea of compact, fantastic makeup. And, and when I was doing all the women on the show, I would always kind of redo the makeup of all the makeup artists because it would always be one company and they would all put a red lip on everyone, whether they were 18 or 83. And it was just like, oh, so... I always was looking at women and think it's their skin, hair and eye. It's this combination. So it's not about, it's about the makeup they use, but it's how they put it on. It's about looking at what suits you. And I thought I want to, I want to do something. And, and so the idea was slowly formulating. And this is something I don't talk about much, Holly, but I just want to talk about delicately. But I had started thinking I'll do something else. And my sister and I started working on an idea together. And I had this idea as well. Johnny was still alive. And then I was having dinner with um, my daughter's godfather and I was talking to him about both and I was wanting to do an SEIS scheme and I was going to see if he would invest. And he said to me, you know, I told him about my sister, the idea I was doing with my sister, which was kind of doing a sort of luxury brand, which was home clothing for inside the house, but still felt outside, whatever it was. It doesn't matter what it was. No. Um, but I then talked about at the end of the evening, I just said about this other thing, but I'd gone to him pitching the first idea. And then he emailed me the next day and he said, Trini, what I don't understand is that your eyes really lit up when you told me about the second idea. And yet there's a part of you that feels this obligation to do the first one. And you must never do something because of an obligation. Mm. Very hard decision because I had to then tell my sister I didn't want to do it with her. And for a few months, we didn't talk to each other. We're very, very close, but it was very, a painful yes. thing because she really wanted to do it. And I really wanted to do it for her sake, but my heart wasn't in it. Yeah. That's the hardest thing I had to do. The other hardest thing is whenever you have an idea as an entrepreneur, you have it in your head and it's safe and protected. And as soon as you make moves to think, is it feasible? That's your first risk you take to put it on the kitchen table and expose it to the world and get people's opinions on it and to have um, intuition as to what of your own opinion should stay in it and what other opinions you should take from other people that would help to develop your idea. So that all was happening at that time. 
And then my work, which I had relied on financially, dried up. So suddenly I didn't have any income. I was in a house way too expensive that I had bought because I'd wanted to have a house when I separated and just buy a house that felt the house I always wanted. So I spent way too much money buying a house. I spent way too much money on a mortgage and I got out alone. So I found myself in a position with terrible amounts to pay each month and not the income. And um, then also um, Lila's father died. And I just thought, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to take at this time, and I'm going through menopause, yeah, am I, I going just, to take just at this time? <laughs> yeah, just throw that one in. Didn't quite Just didn't if it quite hadn't quite killed you off then, but just put yeah, in the menopause yeah, and, you yeah, know. Yeah, just put it in. And because I wasn't having sex, I wasn't counting my period, but I just knew I, you know, I was just whatever. Just didn't, it just all added up badly. So, um, and yet I never felt more determined to do it. And I think sometimes... When things are easy, mm-hmm. it's like when things are tough, you push through and that idea has the biggest chance of success than when ideas come to you easily on a silver platter. Agree. Yeah. it's. I think some of the, um, and certainly people that I've interviewed on this podcast, this sort of uh, idea that what consumers see is, as we just alluded to, was all created overnight and isn't this all wonderful, but actually it's the pain behind the founders. It's the really what they personally have risked. You know, I am risk my home on Not in the High Street, risk my home on Holly & Co. Things can appear what they can appear. Mm. The reality is if you're hand to mouth, this is when I believe you succeed. You make smart choices. Mm-hmm. You work through the night. Mm-hmm. There is no, do you know what I mean? You, if something's not working out, you cut it out. Mm-hmm. You cut the fat. Mm-hmm. You look at the plausible idiot coming through your door saying that they know the answer. Bullshit. You take matters into your own hand. And I also think there's something about maybe starting businesses at an older age as well, where you've just got that experience coming through. And so... You know, that's, uh, I do believe when you're on the floor and you're scrabbling around, this is when genius happens. It's the blood, Mm. sweat and tears that I think makes brands. Tell me about Trini London. You were selling your wardrobe. You moved home. You did it all again. You know, you had to pick Mm -hmm. yourself up. You had this clear vision for your brand. What were those early steps? Because maybe people are thinking, wasn't she loaded? And it's surely just easy, easy for her. Mm. Tell me about those early days because you can feel the energy in this brand. You know, this matters enormously to you. Was it an easy start or has it got easier? Tell, tell me about this startup period because you were 49, were you starting? Yeah, I was 40, 49 starting and I had raised 150,000 with my two, my, uh, a friend at the school gate. So there was somebody I knew at the school gate who wasn't actually a friend, but she was the other person who worked so much that she was away from her daughter a bit. So we were Mm. kind of like, there were some people at school gate who didn't understand that maybe a little bit. So, you know, there was sort of, we had a camaraderie over there. And so we um, got together 
and had coffee occasionally. And I knew she worked at Beauty at Mintown. She ran Beauty. And I wanted to just sense check the idea against somebody who was in the industry because I didn't know anyone in the industry. I've written for, you know, Woman's Journal, Good Housekeeping, Daily Mail, The Sun, everything, The Telegraph, on beauty and skincare and makeup and clothing. But I never make contacts. I'm never good at, you know networking. I hate bloody networking, actually. It's really like, I just like to choose people I love in my life. But networking as a concept just is, oh. So I asked her, you know, this is my idea. And I said, I want to do personalized portable makeup. I want it to be cream-based. I want it to be stackable and easy to use. And I want to do something where the personalization is online. So she said, all right, well, let me think about it. So she took it to her database of predictions. And she came back two weeks later and she said, Trini, I was going to invest in a beer SEIS company, but I want to invest in yours. And I'll put in a hundred grand. And I was like, why? And she said, because of of the four trends in the next five years, you have all four. And I was like, okay, I hate trends. I hate trends. Let me just really reiterate that. (laughs) But I'm glad you're excited. Yeah. So yes, that would be great. So then I went back to the godfather of, of Lila. And I said, look, would you do this too? And he said, yes. So I thought, okay. So I spent that on getting, so then I didn't know anything about the technical background. I knew the idea. I knew the consumer. I knew the woman. I knew what I wanted to deliver to her. I knew the range I wanted to deliver. But, you know, and you know, I had pots in my bathroom. I'd mixed, you know, I'd mixed Chanel foundation Lumiere with some vitamin C powder I got from somewhere else or something else to make the texture I wanted to make something that wasn't a foundation but covered your skin. You know, I I wanted to make what's now our bestseller BFF, but I wanted something that would kind of, you know, break on impact and give you the pigment. So I tried to do pigment that was white and then it changed colour. Very difficult to do in your own home, but you know, just like doing doing this in my bathroom. In my Using bathroom, your and then I got to stir it or something. Yeah, I mean, what? I know it's just yeah, literally. And then I got lots of girls to come in as we started. So, so Jane put me in touch with a manufacturer in Italy. So I would send to the lab things, and I'd say, "This is texture I want you to make this in," and then I'd send them the colours I wanted to make them to make, and then they'd send back to me. This is went on for months back and forth. So that ate into fifty grand. Then I needed to do the tooling because I wanted to do stackable. Mm-hmm. And Jane, again, lovely Jane, who sits on my board now, said, I know somebody who does designs for different brands and maybe you can hire him as a consultant. So Arno, lovely Arno, came in board. And, you know, I, I said, this is what I want. So he made a cad of it. And then we sent it to somebody to do a mould. The first mould came back. It was so ugly, I burst into tears. It was like in this bright blue plastic and the things didn't snap beautifully. And it was just, I just thought, how am I ever going to get to that beautiful design that that we've done? But 11 prototypes later, we were there. So then I had hired somebody as well to do the figures because I'm not good at figures. And they you know, you always have that person who takes you for a ride, mm-hmm. Holly, at that early stage mm-hmm. where you think, I don't know this, so let somebody else do it who knows it. So, you know, he did all this and and I thought I was really trying to forcing myself to like him, thinking, could he come in and be the CFO and whatever. So I remember we then went out and pitched to people. We were pitching somebody who was just about literally to invest. And they turned to this guy and said, will you be working on it full time? That kind of ignoring the female in the room yes. who's founded the business moment. Yes. And the guy said, yes, I will. Maybe I'll do one day a week on my other businesses. And this man who was going to invest was like, that was a no-no to him because if this guy wasn't five days a week, then would he even... Mm-hmm. And I did and you hadn't even given the him the job. Yeah. And I did this thing in the meeting too, which I really couldn't bear because I kind of love figures and I do know figures. I've got, I'm appalling memory, but in, in meetings, I can know 
the average order value, what somebody spends, how many people we got, the conversion rate, everything. It's sort of in my head. And I thought to myself, this is an ego in me. I thought, I know I'm smart and bright and know everything. So let me give a chance for this guy to shine. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. so as a result, he thought, well, does Trini know of any other figures probably? It was just yes. so ironic that I'd done this to make it not be that I should chat cons- consistently yes. through the meeting. So it was just quite funny. So anyway, we didn't get the investment. And then I, at, thank God, at the end of that, I walked out and I thought, I don't need this guy. Yes. And so I then went back to somebody who um, I'd worked with ages ago who'd been incredibly helpful and I'd really liked him. And I said, you know, I can't offer you anything at the moment because this man I was paying an hourly consultancy to, my God, did he charge me. And actually, crawlingly came back in touch when I when there was something in the FT saying, yes. hello, da, 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 da. Uh-huh. did I respond to that email? <laughs> um, and uh, and All so, those moments, Trini. Oh, All God, those moments. Good. They are oh. good. Oh, hi. What did you read? Oh, yes. <laughs> and that was such a good piece in the FT. I remember telling you about it. <laughs> Thank like, you. What yeah. a piece. Uh, it was a good piece. Thank you. But it was just, you know, that yeah. so. so anyway, I think what I'm trying to say here is there were a lot of things going on. And when Johnny died, I remember at the memorial, these very good friends came up to me and said, Trini, we've been speaking to your friends and we think you need to get a job. Um, because you've got responsibility of Lila's, mm-hmm. you just, this might not be the right time for you to start a business. And they were, they came from the most vested place but they just said you need stability right now you know everything is very topsy-turvy maybe you should do that so I said okay I'll think about it and then I that night it really cemented I have to do this (laughs) so uh the next two days later I sent them an email and I said look thanks for that advice thanks for that advice but I've I've got to do it I'm afraid so very sweetly they send an email back saying well look when you have a proper business plan send it to us Mm -hmm. they actually became one of my investors so then I did go do the rounds of investment. I had the idea. I knew that at the time I had like 100,000 followers. And I said, I wanted to do a very realistic... When you're starting a business and you're projecting what you'll sell, it's so interesting how differently men and women do it. Because men, I think, and I want to be judging here, Holly, but I think men have this, we're going to do unbelievable multiples. And there's something about women who want to give you... Realistic realistic expectations. Okay. Um, but so I just, I did want to think, I, I really still felt, let me give you realistic mm-hmm. expectations. And so I did it as I said, 3% of my social media follower will convert to purchasers. And I based it on that. And as the social media following increased, the conversion stayed at 3%, but obviously the figures went up. So I have here actually on the wall, I'm just going to read it out to you. So on the, because one of my investors sent me this because we had a hockey stick oh, yeah. in our oh, yeah. growth. Okay. And so I had said, this is exactly right. I said in October 17th, we launched, you know, we'd get to, I said, we'll get to a million in March 2019. And then I said, we'll get to, you know, no, actually I got it here. This is quite funny. So I said, 2018, a million, 2019, 3 million, 2020, 10 million, 2021, 20 million. 2022, 39 million, 2023, 76 million. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting, because this is very interesting, actually, is we then did in 2018, I think we did one and something, then we did four, then we did 11, then we did 40 something, then we did 50 something. I'm not going to give you the details. So it was just, we were quite conservative there. All right. And a lot of people said, I don't see how in year 
five, you're going to get to that 76. And actually, in year five, we might hit that spot on. I don't know. We might be a bit more. So it's quite interesting. And I just, I have that. It's the only little paraphernalia that I have because it reminds me of really trying to think that you know how you think you're going to grow it. Yeah. So it was very difficult. And it's one of the hardest things to do when you're, if you are going to start a business where you want to go and get investment, is to have a confidence in which you're going to say how mm. you're going to grow those mm-hmm. figures. And in the markets of today, it's much, it's very different from three years ago. And, you know, we had really growth years and we've had slow growth years, we've had fast growth years. So, And you also had those 5,000 voices in your head, you know, yeah. of these women. <laughs> You know, and that, mm. did, did you always, like, when you were predicting, I mean, you know, those numbers are pretty spot on. When you predicted this future, did you know that almost everything had been leading up to this point? That, you know, makeup wasn't selling online, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? You mm-hmm. were one of the first yeah. to sell online. You weren't going to be in stores, you know, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you were doing something very new. But it was almost like, Everything has been leading up to this moment. Well, everything everything came together, but it's not like it's. There are very few moments, and if you think about this, Holly, I think you'll agree where you have that cognitive. God, this is brilliant. This is everything I've led up to, and oh, and yeah. you feel it, and you, and you take a step back and you celebrate it. <laughs> for you three have, or to four have days. someone ask you the question um, and tell you, know, you that. Yes, yeah? and then yes, exactly. You can't smell the roses yourself. You're just like you're whipping yourself. Why haven't we done a hundred million for fuck's sake, I'm everybody? So, yeah, you can't smell the roses yourself. That's such you a can't, good. You can't. Yeah, you need somebody else to help you smell the roses. Yes, you do. True. But it mm, feels like so that true. because you knew it in your soul. Mm-hmm. You saw the uh, the actual product. You saw the colours. You had the 5,000 women in your head. You had investors tell you that the only people worth selling to online were millennials. You mm. knew, though, the woman who you were speaking to. Mm. It's the women like myself that watch you, who you knew you could relate to. And you've built this unbelievable loyal following. You know, you talked about you had 100,000 followers. Now you have over a million followers. You have these, the way you use social media, it's been so refreshing. Mm. My God. I mean, it's so refreshing to feel like you are talking to me. Mm. Was that a conscious decision that you almost, it was almost going back to your TV days, but now you had a live audience? It's interesting because there are two, like, there's different channels. So through all the different social media, I've got 4 million people who follow us. But on Instagram, which is where some people follow mm-hmm. me, I've got a million. But on Facebook, I have 2 million. Mm. Actually, as of today, I have 2 million. And then YouTube is another audience too. So there's a few things here. One is when you make content, you need to make content sometimes that's fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is it's relevant to the channel in which you're talking to. So... Facebook and Instagram, to an extent, have a very similar audience, but the lingering time on Facebook might be different from the lingering time on Instagram. The method of the uh, channel is such that, you know, Instagram, as we know, is turning a bit into TikTok, but there's a scrolling, whereas Facebook is a scrolling, but it's a more gentle scrolling and you go into things. And YouTube is the longest playtime. So, you know, the proportion of a video watch, and I sometimes do very long form content, is very high on YouTube. And also it's about 40% of US audience. So they all have different things in them. But when I first started doing social, I never did photographs. I always did mm. moving image because my heritage is from mm-hmm. film, not from um, photographs. So in 2015, I think I had 10 photographs. And I went straight to video. And 
I did find that when I first did it, I went to see Facebook because somebody had introduced me to Facebook. And this guy said to me, just put your phone up and just start filming. So I put my phone up and I was in my bathroom. And I remember these people came through and they were leaving comments. And I was, they were like, are you the person who used to be Trini and Susanna? And I went, because I don't have an ego hugely like that. I don't give a shit. You know, I'm 58. I'm beyond that kind of look at me bullshit. So I said, yes, I was. And I still am, you know. And it was just... I thought this is delightful. Yes, you know, it's it delightful. Could be amazing. It was amazing. And you know, it went back to that feeling for me. And this is the feeling I really had so immediately is when I shifted from doing what not to wear in the UK and I went abroad. What that did for my education, Holly, is to realise every woman around the world, whether she's a Hindi in India, whether she's Israeli Jewish in Israel, whether she's an outgoing Aussie, you know, religion, skin tone, age, environment, education. Emotionally, we have so many Mm -hmm. interesting uh, tied feelings together. So it gave me this incredible knowledge. So when then I started speaking to these women, it was like that moment I'd had when I had the idea for Ready 2. It was like global Mm-hmm. You know, and now I do this, I do on Facebook, I do, I, I'm not doing it for the summer, but I've done it for about a year with this girl, Joe Bobby, who's a um, shaman. We do a meditation every Friday. And I just started because I share stuff I really enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. I then think, well, I'll just do yeah. it with the audience and see who wants to do it yeah, with me. Exercise classes. People and exercise classes. But on Facebook, we have about a thousand people who every Friday at 6 p.m., We meditate together for 15 minutes. Oh my gosh, how amazing. We do this meditation and there'll be people in Australia and there'll be people in America because it's at a time when, you know, in Australia it's like 4am but there are Australians on there. But when it made the most impact to me is we did one like two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine and there was three women who were in Kiwi and they were on the meditation with us and you know, I had thought to myself, let's do one just like really jointly sending, you know, we we were sending physical things and trying to help financially a lot of people just giving money and stuff, but just have, be at one with mm-hmm. empathy, just that empathetic feeling that we empathize with where you're at and it's it's a dreadful situation. So we all did some meditation. It was really, really, you know, lots of them have been very uh, profound, but it made me love even more this community because Mm. these women are very special, Holly, and you can get touch different communities on different things, but they're supportive. They love each other. And when they post on, because there's this Trini tribe community within Facebook, which is another set of people who just follow stuff to do with Trini and Trini London. And I spoke about myself in third person there, which I never do in my life, but with me and with Trini London. And they post pictures themselves, which normally when they might never show a picture of themselves. And then 20 women will say, you look fantastic. Do another one, you know, yeah. do it again. And they think, oh my God, I can do this, yeah. you know. And, and to help women like that, they are not the lowest hanging fruit yeah. in any commercial business. But they are women who maybe so benefit from what maybe we can offer. And that then makes it the most powerful thing that one can do with one's life. It's quite unbelievable. I'm going to ask you in a minute what next, but in each package of your makeup has an inscription saying, be your best inside mm-hmm. Mm. Is there a level of confidence that you now have as 50-something-year-old woman, which you believe comes with age? Like, is this your place now? Is this your place? You know, you're now sharing, you're meditating, you're doing your 
Uh, I don't fitness. feel everyone has to get to 58 to get to a place of loving themselves. No, I'm not saying, okay. I, but I, I say, I speak personally, you know, I am a hundred percent a very different. The happiest you felt. Ever. Because yeah, I am now truly who I am building mm-hmm. what I am. And mm-hmm. it is my long term. I'm not doing mm-hmm. anything else but this on, on this time yeah. in the planet. So yeah. I'm lucky to say that. Yeah. Do you feel is that what you're saying in there? Be your best. Is that is that something that you're trying to put out to the world to women? And you think that you can be part of that journey with her? I definitely think that whenever I'm giving advice, I'm pointing my finger. You know, four fingers are coming back at me, mm-hmm. and it is that tell yourself by telling other people you tell yourself, and by telling yourself you you mention to other people. So. The, the most important thing about the statement, be your best, is the dot, dot, dot after it, right? Because if it's sort of be your best, that's what not to wear days. Mm-hmm. But it's like be your best. Mm-hmm. What do you think your best could be? What is the potential of your best to be? And be that person because you can be that person. So has it taken me until 58 to be that? I'm still on a journey, but yes, I am I am, you know, I, I have some friends around me who's who sort of call me up and say, I've got a really good pension person for you because I need to work out that I might only have another 25 summers. And I said, I don't know if I can have you again as my friend, <laughs> if that's how you think about it in life, that you are looking at the fact you have 25 summers left because you're 58. And that means at sort of 70, uh, 83, you think that's it, kaput, mama. Um, so I do definitely, this goes back to the thing also, Holly, of living in the moment Mm. and how important. And I feel I fit my skin 100% now. I do live in the moment. I don't live in the past. And I try not to live too much in the future. When I worry, then I know I'm living too much in the future. And, you know, Thich Nhat Khan, The Road to Mindfulness, all these people who occasionally I dip into, living in the moment is the most important thing I can do because then I am feeling what's going on around me mm-hmm. and I'm absorbing. It's like, you know, I'm that flower needing to absorb the sunlight. Well, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, it is going to be fascinating. To Tell me, I've got a few questions left, but what is the future for Trini London? Uh, the future is... Obviously, there's things you can say and can't say. Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, <laughs> we did we did makeup and I love doing makeup. Skincare is... Probably my biggest passion, but I need to do makeup first in order to bring out skincare because I just felt it was logical and women mm-hmm. notice that much more in a, a makeover and then you you get mm-hmm. to know them and then you start talking to them about their skin underneath. And it's now after four months, it's 35% of our revenue. So wow. it's really had an incredible impact and I'm very excited. So that's only the second of five verticals I'm doing. So there's two more which are currently in my MPD. One is the MPD inside my head and the other What's is the an physical MPD, MPD for everyone. New product new product development. There we go, sorry. Everyone. Um yes, yeah, sorry. So there's there's one which is the MPD inside the voices inside my head and the other is an MPD which is within the department of new product development. Um, it's alive. So so it's alive. Um so there's definitely a long way to go now in terms of, you know, lots of people in my industry, if it's a D2C kind of business, which is nearly a dirty word now because things must be omni-channel and monuments look at the retail aspect of that. But I do think I want to be involved in this business for quite a long time. It could be I have one investor buying out another. It could be mm-hmm. that, you know, I do something where there's a, in a few years, there's a sale, but I have a part of the new company, but I love it. It's my, it, I love doing mm. it. And I love everything that goes with that sense of trying to 
be there for a certain community and give them what you think they might need to help them. And it's like deciding what are those things I think would really help them on their journey and delivering them. And some of them, they might say to me, this is what I think I need. But at the moment, it's sort of what I, I'm going to show them what I think they might need and might help them. Yeah, It's still that part of the journey. Yeah. It's all those voices you've collected. Trudy, tell me, um, I ask every single founder who I interviewed that if running our businesses is like being on some mental roller coaster, where we know that it's normally on the downward side uh, rather than the mm -hmm. upward side, uh, what's been your biggest low so far? Um, since I launched the business? It can be, people pick any time actually in their lives, um, but it can be launching your business. I think my biggest low was in my early 20s, thinking I'd lived so many lives and I was so tired. Mm. You know, I was just tired. I didn't want the life I had in front of me and I was tired. It's a young age and to I feel that. And I had that at 20, 26, I felt that. Yeah. And you're high where you've got the most amazing face of makeup. You're wearing one of your yellow outfits behind you and you're on the top of the roller coaster. What would that be? Yeah, that would probably be, we did something called Trini London Land, which was a um, sort of four-day pop-up in central London where we celebrated Trini London. We had thousands of people come through the doors. And I met all these women who had felt the effect of being having something to do with Trini London. You know, I sat there and and the team, for the team to mm, see it too, yes. because the team are like my kids and it's a very, you know, it's not a politically good thing to say the team are like your children because that kind of opens a can of worms as to how one should make those relationships but they are you know that we're now 200 people in the business and when we started we were around a kitchen table and I knew what was on everyone's computer but I still feel that sense that they are family and for them to all experience so some people in tech and some people in other parts of the business like finance to meet that community of people that we provide products and services to and for them to experience it was as moving to me as meeting a lot of women en masse and hearing their stories because I am motivated by money because I still don't own a home Holly and I'm going to hopefully buy one in January or February but you know, there's various things you think you tick the box. I, I want to buy my own home before I'm 60 um, again. And, you know, those kind of things. But also you realise the impact that the business has had to people on an emotional level. Mm. And, and if you really can affect people on an emotional level, then everything else follows. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Trini, I could literally talk to you for hours You've got one eye made up, one eye not made up. So when we yeah, came onto the yeah. podcast, everybody, I said to Trini, hey, Trini, just so you know, it's not recording. She went, well, we're not recording. I was like, no, we're not filming. She's like, yeah, because I'm in the middle of a, 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 a doing my own thing and I've got one eye made up and one eye not made up. Yeah. Um, but you are a breath of fresh air. You always have been, by the way. Um, you have had a profound effect on us women of a certain age and you are living in our hearts. And I couldn't wish you more success because, you know, for us, we spoke about it. I was one of those women, everyone. That if anyone saw my stories, I went up to Trini in Zara um, and it's like, Trini, Trini, Trini. Um, and luckily, Trini looked at me as she was taking another item out and doing her thing. But, you know, there's not many people that us women get to look up to in business. And just watching you 
pick yourself up in different stages of your life, be the age that you are, and you are the zest you have for what you're building, I can only imagine what we're going to see. And it's a frigging honour to interview you, honestly. And so thank you for your time. Can I just say to be interviewed by you, Holly, is an honour too, because I do, you know, not on the high street as a business and when it started and everything you did at a very early stage compared to a lot of newer businesses has been incredibly impactful. And I'm so flattered that you asked me on the podcast. Oh my gosh. That's a pinch me moment. My my goodness. Trini, um, I've asked you to prepare a letter to your younger self. I found this the hardest thing. I nearly didn't do your podcast because I had to do I know, this. I know. I, there's a lot of people that say that, mm, by the mm, way. They want yeah. to punch me in the face because they're like, do you actually understand how freaking busy I am? And now you want me not only to spend this time on your podcast, but to write a letter to your younger self. But, but also, how do you do that? Because I had to really look at it and you've sent me people's to listen to. And I was like, OK, I'm listening. And one woman's I felt was talking to her real self and talking about herself. And the other was just talking about a person who's younger. And I just got confused in the grammatical implications. <laughs> and also, everything also, goes. Oh, fuck. Anyway, I, and then when I when I wrote it, I sent it to Louise, who is like my rock. All right. And um, I said, what do you think? She said, I think it's a bit doomy and gloomy. <laughs> Can you throw in something lighthearted? And I said, yeah, but I'm writing to my younger self. And I was so depressed then. Well, then that's this good. Is, this is real. So just, this is real. I'm putting it in context. Okay. I'm trying to put something around it so you won't judge me <laughs> for it, Holly. Okay. All right. I am going to say over to you. Okay. Over let me just take Trini. a sip of water. Just take mm. a sip. I'm going to take a sip. Okay. And I'm not saying dear Trini at the beginning, am I? No, nobody says that. Everyone says that. You better say it. Oh, you see, it's like when you say... Come on. It's like when people talk about themselves in third person. I think it's, oh, oh, cringe. Okay. Dear Trini, don't worry if all your friends feel they know what they want to do. Sometimes it takes time to figure out what's going to work for you. When you do something to fit in with the crowd, like a little gossip to make people feel that you're in the know... Think about it, where it will lead and what drives your compulsion to share it. Because generally, it's more about you than about other people. We do this sometimes when we feel we want people to like us more, to be the knower of secrets. But if you turn the tables, sometimes it's worth thinking about why somebody feels a need to gossip and what's going on with them. Stand up for what you believe in and be vocal about it as then it enables other people to see where you stand more clearly. Try not to be scared to be the first one in a discussion with an opinion. It shows that you know how to take a risk. Don't worry if they don't agree with your opinion, because the right person will so appreciate that you have one. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Don't do drugs. You can be your best self without them. Try not to live your life through somebody else, taking on their beliefs and opinions that might not be your own in order that they like you more. In the long term, you will lose a sense of who you are and what you believe in. Trying to fit into a career that your parents want but you are unhappy and unfulfilled in, will only let yourself down. It might take time to find a career that really makes you happy, but it has the potential to be there for you if you let yourself find it, and you will be a CEO. Money. Let's talk about debt. Think about 
what you're buying and why you're buying it. Buying can be about filling a hole that might be best filled elsewhere. But sometimes buying something is also a way of rewarding ourselves for working really hard, achieving a goal. And with that at the back of your mind, it might be difficult sometimes when none of these are the reason. Work out the difference between buying something to reward yourself and buying something to fill a hole. Remember, 99% of everything you worry about will never happen. Let's talk about guilt and shame. Guilt is about an action that involves other people, and shame you give entirely to yourself and is totally internalized. Shame is really the voice inside your head saying you don't have a right to be you. When you hear this voice, it's really important to know that it's not actually the core of you, but just the voice inside your head. You can talk to it and you can tell it to quieten down. You can use devices such as meditation just to give space in your head. Your acne will get better and fake tan is not your friend. <laughs> brilliant oh brilliant my goodness and do you think your younger self would have listened I don't know it's like I'd say to Lila because her dad the irony is that her dad would always say to me 99% of everything that you worry about Trini will never happen and he was always right yeah you know until he killed himself gosh my goodness so there's things in this, and I will say that to Lila. I will say, remember, Dad has said to you, you know, mm. Lila doesn't know my biggest fear or something, but she hears it. Mm. And in a way, when I wrote this, I thought, what will she hear yes. and maybe take on board? So I have, you know, there was times at school when Lila was bullied, and I would say to her, darling, I want you to go up to that person and say, are you feeling okay? And that person's going to be taken back and say, Why? And it's because you want to be so mean to me, there must be something really horrible going on inside your head. And she did this and it stopped the bullying. So a few little things, you know. Trini, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time and for giving us all of that. We're all going to watch you. We're cheerleaders by your side virtually. (laughs) And and it's just been a great honour to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.